Hi, Chris. Uh, welcome to Network Capital. I've just recently read two of your books, uh, The TikTok Boom and uh, The YouTube YouTubers, How YouTube Shook Up TV and Created a New Generation of Stars. I learned so much about uh, the culture, the technology, the history of um, what's going on today. And I thought it'll be interesting for our community members, our subscribers to listen to your story about how you got started and how this adventure came into being. So could you tell us a bit about uh, who you are and uh, how did you get interested in capturing the story of uh, TikTok and YouTube? Yeah, so I'm a journalist who's been working in the industry for around about a decade now and have done a lot of stuff. So you know, I, I write a lot of things for various different publications. The Economist, I used to write about business schools and assisted dying, which is you know, two very, very different uh, subjects. For Wired, I write about lots of technology. For New Scientist, I write about... Mm-hmm the latest academic research coming out for the Guardian, the Times and the Telegraph and the BBC. I tend to try and explain technology. Um, But yeah, the the books are an attempt really to kind of justify, I think, um, professionally, the sheer amount of time that I spend on both apps, just wasting away my time in bed. So there is kind of a a reason for doing it in in that I, I kind of, I recognized that these were two huge platforms when they both started to rise. And, you know, I'm, I'm 32, so I'm kind of of that age where I've grown up on the internet and with its various associated apps. I realized that these were big things and more importantly, that they weren't necessarily being covered an awful lot by the media, at least not in in the sort of nuanced way that you'd expect. I know we're going to talk about how people develop careers on these platforms and you know for a long time the tone of coverage in journalism wasn't necessarily looking at the business side of youtube or tiktok it was just kind of these are weird things so i i use that as kind of a justification and then is that there needed to be book length analyses of them both and decided that i do it yeah and the process must have been uh, a little bit serendipitous a little bit planned but a lot of it a result of your writings. So let's go back to some of the articles that you've written before the book came out. Um, what was your process like? How did you get intrigued by this whole TikTok phenomenon? Yeah, so TikTok, um, you know, part of the reason why I was so interested in TikTok was that um, I was at an event, which is predominantly a YouTube event called VidCon Um which is kind of an online video industry conference, which doesn't sound very interesting, but actually really, really is. It was held at the XL Arena in London um, in February 2019. And there was one particular panel discussion there about TikTok, which just sparked some interest in me because the people there in the audience were far younger than anybody else. And I thought, well, these are the consumers of tomorrow. So this must be a big deal. So that was the start of 2019. I started covering TikTok um, in sort of iterative stories for publications in the spring of 2019, pitched the idea of the book to my agent, who then passed it on to publishers, um, who initially were skeptical because I think, you know, a lot of these platforms, a lot of these startups, a lot of these apps come about every single day and promise to be the next big thing and people buy into it as the next big thing and then they disappear into nothing essentially 
Um, yeah, yeah, we can probably all think of a long list of those. So there was a gamble, you know, as, as you kind of said, you know, the timing was very, very lucky, but there was a, a significant gamble in sort of 2019 of do I really want to do a book length analysis of this and all the time that that takes, knowing that potentially the app may not exist in two years' time or may not you know come to fruition as I thought it may. Um, and certainly my publisher wasn't interested initially. Um, it took about really? a year. Yeah, he, yeah, they initially turned it down. Um, they they published YouTubers. They you know they had when they took on YouTubers the you know, sort of twelve years of um, you know the site existing. So they they knew that was a surer bet. TikTok at the time hadn't been around that long, so they said mm, we're not sure. Uh, but then I revisited them sort of nine months later with my agent and. TikTok had grown since then, and I kept working on the book since then, kind of mm. confident that I would find a place for it somewhere. And so it, it came to be. Yeah, and so much has happened in TikTok's life, right? The creative fund, um, the way they've changed their uh, length of videos, the geopolitical side, which we've, we've covered in the book, uh, which we'll discuss. Could you tell us a bit about... Uh, you know, what was the process of structuring this book? One thing that I was struck by was the history of this short form video app. So maybe we should begin there. I think it's so important for anybody looking to understand TikTok to understand the precursors of TikTok and how you went about researching it. Yeah, I think there is this common misconception and it is one that end users have and is perpetuated by the media because we like a success story that comes out of nowhere and we assume and we present TikTok as if it is this overnight success. And don't get me wrong, it is huge. Its growth is unprecedented. It has been enormously popular in a very short space of time, but it it's not as if it is as new as we think it is. So if we track back the lineage from TikTok as we know it now in the West... You go back a few years and there is an app called Douyin in China, which is developed by the same parent company, which is ByteDance. Um, that has existed for several years longer than TikTok. And yeah. in the book, I explore this concept of what we call parallel platformization, which is that essentially TikTok in the West is Douyin in China, but at a slightly, yeah. slightly little delay Um in terms of new features and things like that. But it's not just Douyin. Um where you have to track back the kind of the lineage. I, I, in planning the book, I, I did a sort of family tree of um, different short form video apps. And you kind of go back to um, apps like Vine and Flippergram, which were popular in the early 2010s. Yeah. Um, and, and they have a lot of kind of TikTok borrows heavily from elements of those. So, you know, there is this misconception that that TikTok is A, an overnight success, and, and B, that it's an accidental success. The reality is that it's not an overnight success. It's been developed over several years to be good. And B, it's not an accidental success because in developing Douyin, which is the Chinese version of TikTok, ByteDance took 100 or more apps and they sort of systematically worked through the features that they liked about it and the features they didn't like about it to design their own app. So this is a company that learns from predecessors' mistakes very, very carefully. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have to admit my own ignorance. I didn't know that TikTok didn't work as TikTok in China, in Hong Kong. 
before I read your book, I had assumed incorrectly that it it must obviously work in China because even the way my friends from China speak, right? It's like, yeah, they're using TikTok all the time and things are buzzing around, but that's evidently not true. So the way the company has gone about building this family of apps, acquiring apps and learning from uh, the previous set of mistakes, I thought you've captured really well. So could you share some thoughts on on the process of writing this down and sharing it with the reader, even an un- as uninitiated as, uh, say, somebody in the West who has no yeah. idea about the industry? Yeah. So uh, you know, the the challenge that all journalists face, whether or not you're writing a book length or whether you're writing kind of a, a short form story, is that you generally research an awful lot more and know a lot more than you actually put into the end written product. And you have to, you know, a journalist's job is to be a translator, essentially, whether you're doing um, yeah, the story of the history of TikTok or whether you are doing a story on a new academic paper that promises innovations in x-rays or AI. You're taking quite complicated deep concepts and you're trying to translate it in a way that a reader can understand um, whether or not they have experience or expertise in the field. So yeah, the process of the book was kind of, you know, it's 120 plus interviews with, with people inside and around TikTok, those who currently work there, those who formerly work there, you know, a very small proportion of the interviews were set up officially by TikTok who were quite helpful during the, the process of reporting out the book. But then, you know, as a journalist, you don't want to be too beholden to a company yeah. um, <clears throat> because they may expect you or present information right in a certain way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the interesting things is the reason I wrote YouTubers was because there were several books out there on YouTube, but they were written by people who work for YouTube. And unsurprisingly, yeah. People who work for YouTube like to promote all the good stuff about YouTube and tamp down all the bad stuff about YouTube. Right. So, you know, TikTok Boom had, um, you know, the majority of the sources are ones that I've curated and um, sort of worked with who are within the company but aren't really allowed to speak to the press. Um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting because very often when I approach TikTok for comment either for things in the book or things in stories that I write. Um, I'm told uh, by those within TikTok and those who who know the sort of PR team in TikTok that, um, you know, I'll I'll approach them for a story and then they'll kind of, word goes around and they go, how did they, how did Chris get this information? Um, Mm. Which is always a nice way to to feel as a journalist because it means that you're doing it's your job. It's a nice right. endorsement of your work. Yeah, they're, they're often, you know, sometimes they don't know, the PR people don't know themselves because obviously they only have a limited visibility into their company, whereas I have as close to a 360-degree view as you can get. But that that poses its own problems and challenges in that um, things that I may find interesting, um, you know, such as... Um, the proportion of users under the age of 14 or whatever, or the um, the different lengths of time that people spend on the app in different countries around the world, which is you know, both of which are data points that I have access to, but didn't necessarily make their way into the book because they're not maybe of interest to a lay reader in the same way as mm. I would find them interesting. So you have to kind of, you know, <clears throat> 
you get very, very close in, you zoom into the company and try and get as much visibility as you can, but then you have to zoom out an awful lot and, and sort of refigure your mind and your viewpoint to say, well, I find that interesting because I know lots of the minutiae of this company, but what would someone who is reading this book wanting to learn about where this app came from want to know or even more so and this is where my publisher really comes in because um you know the person that i work with there is you know a, a middle-aged man who doesn't really know much about social media you know he's maybe he's not of, on tiktok no he's not on tiktok and you know he's, he's barely on twitter he's barely on linkedin even um you know he zooms me out even more and says right well you know we need to go back to first principles here so you know when you say the algorithm, what do you mean by the algorithm? When you say the for you feed, what do we mean by that? So it, it's this balancing act of zooming in in very fine detail to please the tech literate folks who want to know yeah. kind of the inside secrets of TikTok while also zooming out enough that your casual browser walking through Waterstones or WH Smith's or an airport bookshop sees the cover, knows that their kids or their grandkids are obsessed with this app and says, well, let's learn a little bit more about it. And that's the challenge. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that you've done really well, Chris. So the way I stumbled upon your book was that uh, my next book is called The Passion Economy and the Side Hustle Revolution. And somebody recommended that, you know, you can't write about passion economy if you can't write about TikTok. And if you can't, if you need something about TikTok, you need to read Chris's book. And uh, I was so happy to read about the algorithms, the way you described them, because there's a big difference between the way the West looks at uh, discovery and growth and the way TikTok approaches it. And you'd explained it uh, to people like me who are engineers and MBAs, et cetera. And also, like, I made, uh, you know, my younger, uh, you know, cousin, like, eight-year-old read it. And she was also able to follow broadly what you were saying. And, uh, and I think that's the testament of good writing. But could you explain that to us over this uh, masterclass? What is the difference between the way TikTok looks at its algorithm versus, say, an Instagram does or any app on, in the West does? Yeah, so uh, to use kind of the the slightly more technical terms, which I think are still relatively impenetrable until you explain them a little bit more, is TikTok goes by what's called a, so, uh, a content graph, whereas you know other social media platforms that we are more used to in the West go by a social graph, and so. You know, those two concepts are pretty nebulous until you explain them because what is a graph and you know, what is social and what is content? So TikTok basically looks at the type of content that you have previously engaged with and um, gives you more that it thinks you would be interested in. There was an interesting Washington uh, Wall Street Journal video um, that tried to explain the algorithm and, and kind of said that it was much more simplistic than was initially thought because the way that they viewed it was it was based on watch time. So if you watched a cooking video for longer than you did a sports video, the app assumes that you are more interested in cooking videos and therefore serves you more cooking videos. Um, there was an interesting issue with that Wall Street Journal analysis, which is that it set up a load of robot accounts that 
only watched stuff, didn't interact with the videos in any other way. And so I'm wondering whether or not actually the design of the experiment perpetuated the inputs rather than actually how it works in reality. Because it, it you know, again, I should make clear, I don't know how the algorithm works in Extreme, Nobody. extreme detail. Nobody does. <laughs> Not even those in, yep. in the company, yeah. as they said to me. Yeah. Um, but I think that I have a, a decent handle on it. And mm. to a certain extent, the Wall Street Journal video doesn't necessarily chime with my full understanding of the algorithm as, as is. Um, but basically, you know, the way that TikTok works is it looks at your consumption patterns. It sees that you're interested in certain things. It tries to classify you as being interested in those and therefore serves you up more content like that. Um, whereas, you know, a Facebook or something like that will serve you up content that your friends have shared yep. and that your friends like. So it's much less personal um, and therefore potentially much less powerful. And and part of the reason why TikTok is um, so popular is that it, it seems to innately know us. And part of the reason is that shift change from a social graph to a content graph. But then it's also the fact that the consumption is much more dense. Um, yeah, 1.6 million videos are posted every single day in the UK on TikTok, according to testimony that they, they shared in Parliament. Um, and yeah, that's quite a lot of videos. And if you yeah. think about the average length of a TikTok video... You know, it's much less than a say a YouTube video. So if you spend an hour on TikTok and an hour on YouTube, you are creating more data about your consumption patterns on TikTok than you are about YouTube. So you're you're supercharging that algorithm. And when you're supercharging, it allows TikTok to, you know, fine-tune its business model, serve you up. It's like the entire flywheel is set really well in motion. So yeah. a, a question about algorithm is that now that YouTube and Instagram are also trying to break into the short form video uh, landscape, I think even Facebook is to some extent, um, do you see them being able to change their algorithm or tweak them to be able to create it in a more interest graph way? Or is it harder to do than said? I imagine that it would be um, quite difficult. And, you know, it's interesting that you said that you know, the flywheel starts spitting faster and, t and TikTok and ByteDance make a lot more money. I mean, if theoretically YouTube or Instagram wanted to uh, do a wholesale change from their kind of existing algorithm to more of a content graph-driven one, ByteDance does offer the opportunity to buy a version of its algorithm and a version of its computer vision software and a version of its AI. If you really want it, you know, I, I broke the news. It was interesting to see um, the Financial Times follow it up uh, three months later as if it was new, but I, I broke it for Insider um, back in March. Um, wow. ByteDance was, was selling um, what they call the... Uh, a white label algorithm. I think it's there in the book, right? It's, yeah, exactly. it's covered in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Byte Plus, it's called. Um, so yeah, they could do that. Yeah, the interesting thing about sort of YouTube, particularly, is um, you know they've gained success from their algorithm, and I think you know, YouTube still works really, really well in in many instances. Um, they certainly constantly are adapting their algorithm in YouTube because 
whenever I approach them for a, a comment for any story that I write about their algorithm, they make very clear that they made more than 30 changes to things like that in the last year, I think is the, the number that they always reel out. So changes are constant on these things because yeah, this is a highly competitive space. Um, but whether or not you could rewrite from first principles, I'm, I'm less certain. I, I'm, I'm not an engineer. I'm, I'm, I'm not a dev or anything like that. To me, that would seem enormously complicated. So, um, yeah. and you know, why do it when you already have decent success with, with the sort of system that you have? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the thing that uh, many people are trying to mimic what TikTok has done. And I think that just uh, speaks highly of the kind of ecosystem that this company has built. But as you talk about in one of your chapters, TikTok isn't just TikTok. It's part of a larger behemoth that exists. And the algorithm developed for its news app, its discovery, all of them feeds into this machine. So could you give us a, a, a brief overview of uh, how should one study the TikTok ecosystem and what's the relationship uh, with the parent company? Yeah. So, you know, in the West and, and you know, by the West here, I'm, I'm kind of meaning you know, UK, US and Europe because there are lots of other kind of Western countries where there are other bite dance apps. But in the West, we almost exclusively use TikTok. That is yep. the way that we know the parent company ByteDance, if we even know it at all, because many people don't realize that. Most people don't know that there's something called ByteDance. Yeah. yeah, exactly, which is astounding, because when you think about it, ByteDance is, um, you know, pick your number, any number between 140 and 600 billion in terms of the valuation for it. It is a multi-billion, well, hundreds of billion dollars valuation company 34 billion dollars in revenue in 2020 like this is essentially um you know a, a company that we should be adding to the gaffer group you know, the google apple facebook and amazon groups it should be gaffab or something like that with bite <laughs> it. or if you're talking in in china you know the, the likes of 10 cents and baidu and stuff it, it is kind of on a level with them as well um so Binance is a decade old. Um, you know, while its most popular products are TikTok, which is the Western version, and Douyin, which is the Chinese version, um, you know, something like at last count, you know, one point three to one point five billion users between those two um, for the video products. They do have an awful lot of other apps. So the reason that ByteDance became so popular was that their first app that they developed became huge in China. Um, it's an app called Totiao, which means um, today's headlines, basically a news aggregator. It's, it's difficult to describe. It's kind of halfway between like a traditional news app meets a flipboard style thing, meets a, a dig style RSS reader or, or something like that. Um, and you know, that became hugely popular and trained the algorithm um, that is now used in many different ByteDance products um, just simply by the consumption of journalism. But that's not the only thing that they have. You know, they, they develop a load of different apps. Um, they have an educational platform, um, which is popular in generally kind of more developing countries. Um, they have a workplace productivity tool um which is called lark in the west and called facial in china which is 
actually an internal tool that they use to communicate with each other within ByteDance and within TikTok that they then kind of just said, well, we'll roll it out to everybody because you know, we yeah. can make money off this. So that's kind of like a a slacky style um, the type of thing with, with a lot more elements because it also has this Lark Docs, which is kind of the equivalent of Google Docs. There's Lark Sheets, which is you know, Google Sheets. There's, there's all sorts of stuff. Um, and they're constantly you're developing new ideas. Um, so, you know, there are lots of apps that have kind of gone by the wayside in the history of ByteDance. You know, they had like a a Reddit-style meme um meme-based app called um, Nehand Wanzi, which was closed down because of kind of cultural and political sensitivities in China. Um, but, you know, this is a company that is is not just content to be the next YouTube. It, it wants to be the next Google. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, its founder, um, Yang Ximing, said that, you know, he wants his company to be as borderless as Google, which I think is quite a big testament for someone based in China because it, it it shows an ambition that very few Chinese tech companies have had in the past. Yeah. yeah. And the founder's story, the way his political affiliations are or were, um, at least when he began, the way he designed the office, the way he write the, you know, the cultural pay playbook of the organization, it screams strong influence by the likes of Apple, Google's of the world, the founders there. Um, what are your reflections of him? Because he's not a machine learning engineer. He knows computer science, but he picked up along the way. Um, what's his role in shaping the bite downs we know today? And uh, how has he evolved as a leader, in your opinion? Yeah, so this is, this is the kind of interesting question that is always very difficult to answer, because despite asking multiple times, including in you know, the, the month or so since publication of the book, um, I haven't managed to speak to, to giving it, um, but I have spoken to lots of people who do speak to him and do interact with him. Um, and yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, he, to me, seems like very much a global citizen. So pre-pandemic, he was you know, spending one in every three days outside of China. Um, he loves traveling the world. And I think just, he likes context. Yeah, this is this is kind of his main thing. He always likes to understand context. He's always trying to learn more about the company, and I think that's you know he, he's very much shaped the company um, in that image, and he he's been integral to it over the last sort of almost decade now, which is what makes it such an interesting time to be releasing a book about this company and its products because. You know, right as I was closing out the book, he announced that he was going to be stepping down um, mm, from yes. the leadership position, and, and and you know that is um, from all the people that I speak to who are just kind of on the front lines of the company, um, you know, they don't necessarily see it as a huge deal because their interactions with him are small, if non-existent. Um, yeah, he's he's very much a strategy and a vision person, but you know it will be interesting to see how this company that has been built in this one person's image pretty much you know, survives and adapts to be in someone else's hands. Now, obviously, the 
the person who's going to be replacing him, Rubo Liang, is um, is a very close lieutenant, and so you know, mm. probably a continuity candidate. But you know, Yiming Zhang is is very interesting in that you, you kind of highlighted that he's very global looking. He looks at, you know, the examples of Apple and stuff. Steve Jobs once toured, you know, the bike dance offices and things like that. He consumes all of these biographies of Western CEOs when thinking about how he's going to expand his company. Um, and so he's relatively unique, I think, in, in that sort of environment. And so whether or not the kind of global aspect of bike dance continues in quite the same vein after he he leaves. I mean, he'll still be involved in the company. Obviously, you don't just step away from that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, whether or not there is a kind of shift in direction, I, I, I don't think is quite yet certain. Um, I don't think it'll be as significant as maybe some people outside the company fear. But I don't think also it'll just be as much of a shrugging off thing as some of those rank and file employees that I speak to think it will be. I think absolutely. And uh, the Chinese government has been asserting itself, I mean, as late as uh, two weeks ago in, in various industries, which, um, you know, we should definitely discuss. But I would love to understand the founder's role in the acquisitions TikTok made or ByteDance made over the years. And uh, what does it reveal about uh, TikTok's overall strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it shows the sheer amount of money that um, that ballet dancers willing to throw at problems, um, and that doesn't just extend to acquisitions; it extends to uh, to to sort of acquisitions of users as well. You know, they're willing to spend an inordinately large amount of money on advertising the app to people, whether it's you know, in the early days through kind of Facebook ads targeting people, um, you know, more traditional forms of advertising, or even, you know, we've just finished the Euro 2020 football championships and TikTok was the principal sponsor there. You know, that doesn't come cheap um, to get that kind of, you know, ad buy. So they're willing to spend a huge amount of money and um, they're willing to spend a huge amount of money buying companies. So, you know, the biggest, um, highest profile purchase is the purchase of an app called Musical.ly, which was kind of a similar short form video app. It was focused on yeah. lip syncing and, and much more around music, um, which happened in sort of 2017, um, closed in 2018, and um, users were ported over from Musical.ly onto TikTok in sort of August 2018, just over the course of one single day. Um, and, and you know, that is the biggest, highest profile acquisition that TikTok has made. Um, it's kind of a, a very important one because it, it brought them, A, some users. It brought them also um, some of the elements of musically that they were missing in their app. But you know, there's been a lot of others. In the book, I highlight the story of Flippergram, um, which wasn't you know the highest profile or the most expensive acquisition that they made. But it did have a big impact because, you know, Flippergram was a really powerful kind of video editing tool, um, but it never really had the functionality to post videos. Within, um, yeah, yeah. You, you, would, you would, for instance, you would take a video, you would edit it in Flippergram, and then you would post it to Instagram. That, that was kind of the main 
use case of it in in its existence. Um, I love learning about the watermark that you described in the flipgram uh, story. Yeah, and then that, yeah, so flipgram. You know, people who were around in the, the early 2010s internet will remember flipgram because every single video that was posted there had a, a little flipgram logo in it, um, which I remember being infuriating because I would want to edit nice videos and then not have that watermark on there, but it makes business sense right. because suddenly you see it and you go, oh, this this video is nicely edited. I'll download this app myself. And it's a principle that you know, TikTok has now. Um, you know, unless you are a teenager, the likelihood is that probably the first time that you encountered TikTok was not directly through the app. You know, the first time that you engaged with a TikTok video will have been probably on Facebook or Instagram or or Twitter or something like that, or uh, a video sent to you natively through WhatsApp or or another messaging system, and you will have seen the watermark on that video. Um, and it's all you know, it's all a way of directing users back to the app and gaining new users. So it it makes an awful lot of sense, and you know, musically gets the sort of attention for being one of the smartest acquisitions. But there is a reason why I included Flippergram's story in there is because to me, you know, there are elements of that which are as important for the story of TikTok. And it really was. I didn't know about this acquisition, but when I read it, I could immediately trace it back to what TikTok does today. So it seems to be a really interesting growth plus acquisition strategy to make TikTok as borderless as uh, as Google, as the founder says. So it clearly turned out well. But let's uh, discuss growth a bit more. So why do you think, like, if you think like an anthropologist plus a business person, why do you think TikTok became as popular as it did? And what were some things that it did to, you know, capture the zeitgeist, capture the culture of uh, of the moment? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a bunch of different reasons for that, which are <clears throat> hugely complicated and, and difficult to kind of discern. But if we, if we kind of boil it down to the bare essentials, um, you know, one of the reasons why it is so useful and so powerful and so engaging to a lot of people is you get thrown headlong into the content. So first of all, you know, as a consumer, it is a really nice app to be in because you don't have to make effort to seek out stuff and the stuff that you get sent is generally quite interesting to you likewise you have um the ability to become a content creator yourself very very simply so they have very powerful filming shooting editing and posting tools that allow you to make a really complicated video in a very easy way so you know i have a condenser mic in front of me i have a, a ring light a condenser mic in front of me a ring light over here you know that is kind of one or two elements of a six or seven piece bit of kit that you need to produce decent quality youtube videos you know you need a a nice dslr camera to produce high quality youtube videos you need a good video editing software in order to do it and you need good internet connection as well as a lot more lights whereas on tiktok all of that is kind of baked into the app you know it can make passable quality content in a very easy way so that's why they've gained users is that it's easier to use the app than ever before but then you're looking at a kind of more macro level and 
you have you know things like um they are very very smart in where they try and build out so you know some of their first markets outside of china when they were kind of expanding tiktok in the west were japan where you've got very high smartphone penetration and then other southeast asian countries where you know maybe the market isn't as developed and you know that work to their benefit so for instance you know <clears throat> tiktok was huge in india before it got banned there you know 200 million yeah. users at least um you know, had it not been banned in india we would be looking at a billion user company already um which is kind Easy. of astounding yeah um and and so you know what you you see there is a really conscious decision to try and acquire the next billion users i think and they do that in a really sensible way. So in the book, I, I go into a lot of detail about kind of the Indian growth um, playbook because I think it, it's kind of one that they use in lots of other markets, which is they they sort of, they bombard um, cheaper to acquire users with advertising, get them on board the app, and then they have a head of steam. They're then able to go to publications and say hey look we've acquired x million users in this short space of time it doesn't really matter that the content isn't that great it's not that aspirational because they then target um you know the slightly higher class users and they move on and then they trade up those users for kind of the more traditional influencers and creators that we know about um and it, it, it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So they, they're really smart in how they acquire users. And I think do it in a, a really logical way that's benefited them in the long run. 100%. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, TikTok's expansion plans, the way the company is growing, um, one thing that becomes central to it is careers. So as you write in your YouTube book, becoming a YouTuber is an aspirational career choice for kids, millennials, Gen Zs these days. How is uh, TikTok looking at the career space? How how are people building careers out of uh, TikTok today? They're doing a lot, um, and you know, for good reason because you know, the consumers of all this content are on TikTok now. So you you see. Um, a lot more people gaining overnight success on TikTok than you do on YouTube. And that's kind of both a blessing and a curse. So it means that um, the opportunity to make money is potentially greater, I think, on TikTok. But the returns and the longevity as it currently stands is is lower than any other um, online content creation platform. So... You know, and this kind of this gets to the point of cut through into the mainstream. Um, TikTok has mainstream cut through. You know, there's there's no doubt about that. But I think that you would be hard pushed to get as much recognition of a Charlie D'Amelio as you would of a YouTube star or a mainstream celebrity, and that is partly because of the way that TikTok handles content. Um, you know, followers are not really an important metric on the app, truthfully, because of the way that you consume content. You know, you open up TikTok and you're presented with a for you page by default. It is stuff that the app thinks you'll like. And the main 
um, the main method of content there, the main commodity is not individual profiles, but it is in fact just individual videos. Um, yeah. So you have less of a connection with your audience, I think, as a, a digital content creator on TikTok as you do on YouTube or Instagram or any others. Um, in terms of making money, you know, TikTok has recognized that there's the need to make money. So they have a creator fund, um, which directly pays users for videos when they post, which is an interesting concept that has been copied by everybody else and their parents and yeah. <laughs> their, their relatives since, I think. Um, you know, YouTube's announced a creator fund, Instagram has, Snapchat has, all of these different places. Um, the payouts aren't very good. Um, yeah. It's fractions of a penny for each sort of view, um, which is an issue that they'll have to fix. Then they also have this thing called the Creator Marketplace, which is kind of their attempt, I think, to head off the issue of third-party um, product placement services that kind of developed in the early years of YouTube and took all the money out of it. Um your TikTok will connect you as a brand with creators who could potentially help your brand reach um, currently for free. But, you know, you imagine that at some point they might sneak in saying, we're the middleman, give us a little bit of money there. Um, you know, it's kind of very interesting vertical integration. So there are opportunities to become a content creator full time. Um, the issue is that it's perhaps more so than any other app. TikTok is one of many baskets that you have to put your eggs in and i know that that's been the case for many years you know youtubers have long complained about you know what they get from youtube but there still remains the ability to make the majority of your money on youtube on tiktok i don't think that's necessarily the case which is why you have charlie d'amelio setting up a youtube channel and why charlie d'amelio is on instagram and why a lot of big tiktokers set up accounts on Triller and took money from Triller, which was a competitor to that, looked like for a, a short space of time it could become an alternative to TikTok in 2020 and actually didn't become much. Yeah. Uh, in your book, you've uh, profiled a, a bunch of TikTokers across ages, across countries, across uh, in a wide range of uh, you know things that they do on the app. Now, people should read the book to read them and how you've uh, profiled them. But uh, I would love to learn more about how you decided to select them. And um, when you were, when they were telling you what they were telling you, what jumped out at you? Was there some common thread connecting all the creators you profiled? I think um, it's difficult to find a common thread because actually different creators do it for different purposes. You know, it's become much more, intentional nowadays i think to become uh, a digital content creator and to try and make that a full-time job you know i've been covering this space for quite a long time now and i've spoken to a lot of people and particularly you know with youtubers um you know the book i did go back to the very early days of online video and you know i, I got into an argument with casey neistat um at one yeah point. that's how the book yeah. It's quite something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because basically I took the approach of nowadays people intentionally try and become famous on YouTube because they want to make a career. That's 
know, the reason why the overwhelming majority of people start a digital content creation career. Um, whereas, you know, Casey and lots of other people, Hank Green and others come from a time when, you know, the idea was you would create cool stuff. And if you made money from it, great. If you didn't, you still created cool stuff. Um, whereas that's now changed, you know, capitalism ruins everything, I suppose we can say. Um, <laughs> And you know, that's supercharged with the idea of TikTok now, where I think people are trying to do that a lot. So you know, most of the creators that I spoke to, although again, not all of them, were sort of intentionally trying to um, you know, make money. That you know, There was a Canadian content creator that I spoke to who had tried on YouTube to, to do her thing, and she realized that she, you know, she didn't really have the confidence or the the ability necessarily to engage an audience for such a long time. So she tested it out on TikTok first and then built her confidence from there. But you had accidental stars still. You know, there's a guy called Joe Allington who's called Grandpa Joe on the app. He's kind of 80 odd years old, um, has multiple millions of followers who watch his videos and hang on his every word. And you know, he is extraordinarily popular. I think you know, the one thing that maybe unites all of these creators is they kind of have an ability to connect with an audience for you know, good or bad reasons. And you know, there are a lot of bad content creators out there. Like you don't get saved much of them because the algorithm's doing its job, but they do exist. So I think you know, it's, it's difficult to find. Um, things that unite them. I guess you know, what I was looking for in, in terms of why I chose chose the ones I did was are they doing something interesting that speaks to a broader subsection of the app? So, you know, the Joe Allington, Grandpa Joe uh, example was selected because um, there is, you know, a growing aging user base on TikTok. You know, um, yep. two thirds of its audience now are the age of twenty-five. Um, you know, is not insignificant for a, a company that you know was best known for being a teenage app mm. not that long ago. So he was kind of there to talk about that example. I had an example of a, an Indian TikToker called Gita Shridhar who who then moved on to other apps when TikTok was banned in there. And, you know, she was there because she kind of, um, you know, she had been sort of semi-popular um, for cooking stuff before TikTok existed. But then she struggled to find her feet afterwards because of the elements of TikTok makes video content creation so much easier. Um, and yeah. all the competitors that replaced it in India struggled with that. So, you know, they were all picked to try and be emblematic of a broader subsection of TikTok. Um, but part of the challenge is TikTok is so big that you, yeah, the, the huge swathes of the app that I had to miss out because TikTok is all things to all people. And, you know, the book yeah. would be 3,000 pages long rather than sort of 300 <laughs> if, if I covered it all. Yeah. yeah. I want to just uh, check this with you. Based on my understanding of the creators I read about, the ones I casually know, it seems to me that they became popular almost surprisingly, that they were not really planning it, but they just woke up one morning and they had blown up and they were intentional about it. 
So Chris, is that true or is that not really? There are people who've intentionally become famous on TikTok and followed it through. Yeah, I mean, well, look, the intentionality of it, I think, is always there. Like, why? Is it, you know, the success is accidental. Um, but I think that in order to put yourself out in front of a camera, to take the time to record, edit, and post videos, even if it's easier than it is on YouTube, and also to keep up necessarily the pace of posting content to feed the algorithm in order to serve you to an audience, requires a degree of intentionality. Now, you know, of course, accidental successes are more common on TikTok than they are elsewhere. Where and that's mm. by the design of the app. You know, it, it, you know, Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame or 15 seconds on TikTok because you literally get propelled through a single video to potentially millions of people's for you pages. And you know, if you're lucky, they'll stick around, but sometimes they don't. Um, you know, yeah. the perfect example is I, I did a video on TikTok that you know, I traditionally usually get anywhere between. If it's a bad video, then sort of a hundred views. If it's a decent video between one and 5,000 views, I did one video that got me, you know, half a million views in a day. Wow. Um, but it wasn't replicated after that. You know, it was, that was my flash of success. It was half a million views and then it disappeared. Um, which I think kind of shows the precarity of being an online content creator and particularly so on TikTok where your connection, your parasocial relationship with your audience is not as strong as it is on YouTube. You know, on YouTube, if you start to founder and fail a little bit, you know, your fans will come and say, what's up? What's happening? Are you okay? Whereas on TikTok, they don't necessarily make that personal connection with you because of the way the app presents videos and the shorter length of content, which means that you don't get to know someone as much. So potentially you're out there in the cold very, very quickly. Yeah. You know, we're coming towards the close. I just want to uh, get a sense of uh, two things. One, what is your consumption diet and how do you spend your day uh, doing the multiple things that you do? And second, and maybe you could start with this question, what does the future of TikTok look like or ByteDance look like with, with the Chinese government becoming a lot more, uh, whatever they're becoming, and uh, the change in leadership, with other companies trying to mimic some aspects of uh, of their ecosystem, what's your best take of it? I think TikTok is here for the foreseeable future. I think I think now it's kind of at the stage of being too big to fail. Um, I, and you know, I think it's telling that lots of the old guard of video consumption apps and also just general social media platforms are following in its footsteps you know that that is intentional the idea that they are so successful um and they have so much money behind them that you know i don't think tiktok goes away anytime soon the biggest mortal threat to it was in 2020 when obviously donald trump tried to single-handedly shut it down and if it survives that i don't really see how it can't survive anything else um right so i think tiktok continues to grow um you know, the user base numbers are the last ones that we have reputably are October 2020, which was 732 million monthly active users outside of China. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that is close to, if not surpassed, a billion by now. Um, 
you'd think that TikTok would probably announce it, but then if they announced that, then they'd have to announce other numbers and they don't like doing that. But again, TikTok is big and TikTok is here to stay, as I say in the book. So, you know, I I think that it, it, it has an outsized effect and really what we're looking for now is just kind of what the ripples of that will be um, in terms of how it's approached to everything, this kind of more Chinese-based model of how we interact with apps reflects on Western apps. Um, again, it's, it's weathered storms in China before. Um, yeah, while that's going to be difficult, I, I don't, I don't see it being closed down or anything like that there. I think it would be a a very cruel twist of irony if it's able to get a stay of execution in the United States and it ends up being killed off in China. And I just think that, you know, while the universe is throwing a lot of stuff at us, I don't think it's going to throw <laughs> that curveball at us uh, somehow. So, yeah, I think that's how uh, TikTok kind of shakes out in the next year or so. And in terms of content, like in terms of what do you mean in terms of like how I consume content on TikTok or more just generally like what my day is? No, I mean, what I was struck was that uh, you also have a portfolio of careers. You write, you create content, you're an author. So while you were writing this book and the other book, what was the kind of stuff that you read? What was your routine like? Because many of our community members and subscribers want to have a portfolio of careers like yours. So I thought it'll be good to get some advice from you on that front. Yeah, you have to be very, very good at compartmentalizing things. So, you know, for instance, this morning, you know, we're recording this on a Monday morning. We started at 9.30. Um, you know, I was up at, sort of, well, out of bed at 7.30. By 8 o'clock, I was in front of my laptop. I've sent several emails to editors pitching them stories, um, before nine o'clock for sort of three or four different publications, I've set up interviews for later this afternoon from sort of nine to nine fifteen. At the same time, at nine to nine fifteen, I was um, on a Teams call doing a, a supervision for a student, for a student that I teach at uh, a university where I teach journalism. Jumped off that call, jumped onto a call for an interview, um, then jumped on this call. Like, you know, it's you have to be able to do things really well. You know, I, I've been full-time freelance as a journalist. Well, I say full-time freelance. I'm a full-time freelance journalist, and then I have a part-time 0.5 full-time equivalent contract as a university lecturer while also writing books and doing consulting and creating content and um, other stuff that I'm sure I've forgotten. Um you know, I've been full-time freelance for a few years, but until relatively recently, I was doing a full-time job while almost doing full-time freelance. And the way that I did that was that compartmentalizing. You know, I would do interviews on the walk into work and on the bus back from work, I would take my lunch break and write a story in a lunch break. Um, You have to kind of be very, very smart in how you do things and particularly if you want a portfolio career you have to be able to juggle multiple things in your head so you know while i've been doing this podcast interview and this doesn't mean that i'm not paying full attention to you at cash but i've been you know answering emails and you know so once i get off here i have uh, a new scientist story that i pitched earlier this morning that i'm going to write and then um you know i have 
you know, comment on a story that's that has come through in the last sort of fifteen minutes that I'll get onto, and then I'll do a little bit of editing that I'm doing as a sort of contract role at the minute for a website. So it's about being able to pick up and put down things and having a, a good to do list um, that you update every day, and just trying to keep track of things. You know, we're all in a very strange situation where. Yeah, particularly you know the sort of stuff that you're covering in like sort of gig work and um the challenges of a portfolio create we're all spinning many many plates at many many times and it's just how many of those you can spin and keep up to speed at the same time is is the challenge so utilizing a, a calendar app is very very good because it makes sure that you keep on track and then i have a a notepad file open with everything that I've got on at the minute and all the deadlines for it. Um, that ensures that I have my to-do list. And then just never sleeping, apparently, uh, <laughs> is also the answer, I think. But it, it's it's efficiency. Um, and you know, it's not for everybody. I'm When I teach my students, I'm very conscious that writing is something and reporting, to be honest, as well, is something that comes very easily to me. You know, I haven't done any preparation for this interview here. I don't really do preparation when I'm asking the questions either. Sometimes, if I'm honest, and this is a terrible thing to admit, I don't actually know what I'm talking about with the person that I'm talking about because maybe I arranged the interview a week before um, mm. until the interview starts. So I will start with a, so let's start from the beginning. Tell me why you were interested in this. And then when they answer and say, oh, it's because of this, then I go, oh, it's this story that I'm writing. Okay, now I know what questions I'm going to ask. Um, but you have to have a lot of experience to be able to do that, and it takes a lot of practice. So um, it's just being conscious, I think, that you won't be able to do things that quickly necessarily at the start of your career, but practice makes perfect. And that's kind of what you need to do is practice lots to become better and better. Compartmentalize, put it in calendar and prioritize. I strongly recommend that people check out your book, uh, YouTubers, as well as TikTok boom. I hope it goes on to become even more of an Amazon or whatever bestseller it does. And may you continue to write.